Chapter 8 of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 8. It would be futile to deny that the unexpected sound of Ashrin's voice brought a tremor to the mind of his guest. It is disconcerting to the most valiant to be confronted with his antagonist in the very moment that he has laid down his challenge, and at best Milbank was no hero. Nevertheless, he recovered his equanimity with creditable speed, and, exchanging a quick glance with Clodagh, scrambled hastily over the remaining stones and reached the road. As he gained it, Ashim pulled up sharply and dismounted from his big, bony horse, with all the dexterity of a young man. With a loud laugh of greeting, he slipped the bridle over one hand and linked the other in Milbank's arm. "'Hello!' he cried. "'Now who'd have dreamt that I'd meet you like this? I'm ashamed of you, James!' "'Upon my word I am, philandering across the strand in the fall of the evening "'as if he were still in the twenties. "'It's with me you should have been. "'We had the deuce of a fine run.' "'He paused to push his hat from his hot forehead "'and to rearrange the bridle. "'Cloder, who had followed Milbank slowly, "'stepped eagerly forward as she caught the last words. "'Oh, father,' she cried, "'tell us about it. "'Who was there? "'Was the sport good? "'Did the bay carry you well?' In her suddenly awakened interest, it was clear to Milbank that the vital question she had been discussing with him, the opinions he had expressed upon it, his very existence even, were obliterated from her mind, her natural youthful exuberance responding to the idea of any physical action as unfailingly as the needle answers to the magnet. And again, the faintly poignant sense of aloofness and age fell upon him as he listened uncomprehendingly to Ashlyn's excited flow of words and watched the bright, ardent face of the girl glowing out of the shadows. They made a curious trio as they covered the stretch of road that led to Oristown, and passed between the heavy, moss-grown piers of the big gate, entering the deep shade of the avenue. With an instinctive care for his horse, Ashley went first, cautiously guiding the animal over the ruts that time and the heavy rains had ploughed in the soft ground. Behind him came Clodagh, Millbank, and their following of dogs. Once again the thought of what the evening held came unpleasantly to Milbank's mind, as the shadow of the gaunt beech-trees and the outline of the great square house brought the position home to him afresh. Lack imagination as he might, he realised that it was no light task to thwart a man whose faults had been cultivated and whose peculiarities, racial and personal, had been accentuated by a quarter of a century of comparative isolation. But instinctively as the thought came to him, he turned to the girl, whose erect figure had grown indistinct in the gathering gloom. "'Miss Clodagh,' he whispered, "'though I may not understand, are you satisfied to trust me?' There was a pause. Then, with one of the sudden impulses that formed so large a part of her individuality, Clodagh put out her hand, and for an instant her fingers and Milbanks touched. To everyone but Ashton, the dinner that evening was a strain. But the silence or the uneasiness of the others was powerless to damper his enthusiasm. His appetite was tremendous, and as he ate plentifully and swallowed glass after glass of sherry, his excitement and his spirits rose. With the ardour of the born sportsman, he recounted again and again the details of the day's hunt, dwelling lovingly on the behaviour of the dogs and horses, and the prowess of his own mount in particular. Finally, he rose from the table with a flushed face, though a perfectly steady gait, and, crossing the room,
pulled the long bell-rope that hung beside the fireplace. "'Now for our night, James,' he cried. "'Now for my revenge!' "'Clear the table, Burke,' he added, as the old man appeared in answer to the summons. "'Get out the cards and bring enough candles to light us all to glory!' He gave a boisterous laugh, and turning with a touch of bravado, stood facing the picture of his great-grandfather. Instinctively, as he turned his back upon the party, little Nance drew nearer to her sister, and Clodagh glanced at Milbank. As their eyes met, he involuntarily stiffened his small, spare figure, and with a quick, nervous manner nodded towards the door. For a moment Clodagh hesitated, her fear for her father's self-control dominated by her native interest in an encounter. Then Nance decided the matter by plucking hurriedly at her sleeve. "'Don't stop, Claw," she whispered almost inaudibly, her small expressive face puckered with anxiety. "'Don't stop. I'm frightened.' The appeal was instantly effective. Clodagh rose at once, and with one arm passed reassuringly round the child's shoulder, slipped silently from the room. For some moments after the two had departed, Ashlyn retained his position. A millbank, intently watchful of his tall figure, held himself nervously in hand for the coming encounter. At last, when the cloth had been removed, the candles renewed, and the cards placed upon the table, Ashlyn turned, his face flushed with anticipation. "'That's good!' he exclaimed. "'That's good! With a bottle of port and a pack of cards, a man could be happy in Hades!' Not that I'm forgetting the good comrade that gives a flavour to the combination, James. Not that I'm forgetting that. His smile had much of the charm, his voice much of the warmth, that had marked them long ago, as he drew his chair to the table and picked up the cards. Billbank straightened himself in his seat. Come along, man. Draw up. Draw up to the table. What should it be? Euchre again? Are you agreeable to the same stakes? Ashlyn talked on heedless of the strangely unresponsive demeanour of his guest. As he ceased to speak, however, Milbank took the plunge he had been contemplating all day. In the silence of the room, broken only by the faint, comfortable hissing of the peat in the fireplace, and the rustling of the cards as Ashlyn mechanically shuffled them, he pulled his chair forward and laid his clasped hands on the table. "'Dennis,' he said in his thin, quiet voice, "'I'm sorry,' "'Very sorry to disappoint you, but I cannot play.' Ashton paused in the act of shuffling, and laid the cards down. "'What of the name of fortune are you talking about?' he asked. His tone was indulgent and amused. It was evident that the meaning in the other's words had not definitely reached him. "'It is not a joke,' Milbank interposed quickly. "'I cannot—I do not intend to play.' Then for the first time a shadow of comprehension crossed Ashlyn's face, but it was only a shadow. With a boisterous laugh he leant forward and filled the empty glasses that stood upon the table, pushing one across to Millbank. "'Have a drop of port, man,' he cried. "'Twill give you courage to cut.' He lifted and drained his own glass, and setting it back upon the table, refilled it. But Millbank remained immovable. His thin hands were still clasped, his pale face looked anxious. "'Go on, James, you're not afraid of a drop of wine?' Again Ashton laughed, but this time there was an unpleasant ring audible in his voice. Mechanically, Milbank lifted his glass to his lips. "'No,' he said with embarrassed deprecation. "'No, I'm more afraid of your displeasure. I'm—' 
I am exceedingly sorry to disappoint you.' But once more his host laughed. "'Ah, oh, nonsense, man! I know your little scruples, your little conscience, and I am not scared of either. Never meet the devil halfway. He covers the ground too quickly as it is.' He caught up the cards again, and forming them into a pack, held them out. "'Cut!' he said laconically. Milbank drew back, and his lips came together in a thin line. "'Come on, cut!' The colour of Ashton's face became a shade deeper. Still the other sat rigidly still. For a moment their eyes held each other. Then suddenly the blood surged into Ashton's neck and face. "'Do you mean to say that you refuse to play?' he asked slowly. "'That you refuse to give me my revenge?' Milbank met the attack unsteadily. "'My dear Dennis!' but before the words had left his lips, Ashlyn flung the cards upon the table with a force that sent a score of them flying across the room. "'And may I ask you for your reasons?' he demanded with alarming calm. Milbank fenced. "'I do not wish to play.' "'And I don't wish to be treated as a fool.' The other altered his attitude. "'My dear Dennis, you surely acknowledge the right of free will.' I do not wish to play cards, and therefore beg to be excused. What could be simpler? His manner was slightly perturbed, his speech hasty. There was a suggestion of a sleeping volcano in his host's unnatural calm. In the silence that followed, Ashlyn lifted his glass and emptied it slowly. I don't know about that, he said as he set it down. There are unwritten codes that all the free will in the world won't dispose of. One of them is that a gentleman who wins at cards cannot refuse his opponent the satisfaction of his revenge. But perhaps the etiquette has changed since my time. His manner was still controlled, but his eyes glittered. Milbank cleared his throat. My dear Ashton, he said, we are surely friends of too long standing to split hairs in this fashion. What is this revenge that you talk of? Nothing. A myth, an imaginary justification of honour. A quick sound of contempt escaped Ashlyn. And what is every code and every sentiment in the world but an outcome of imagination? He cried. What is it but imagination that herds us off from the beasts? I am satisfied to call it imagination. It tells me that I was worsted last night, that I am capable of better things if I try my luck again. I am satisfied to follow its promptings and demand my revenge. For a while, Milbank sat miserable and undecided. Then under the goad of the other's eyes, he did an ill-judged thing. Fumbling nervously for his letter-case, he rose from his seat and walked across to the fireplace. "'There is nothing for you to revenge,' he said agitatedly. "'There was no play last night. It's cancelled. I, I cancel it.' With tremulous haste, he pulled up the letter-case, extricated Ashlyn's cheque, and dropped it into the fire. There was a pause, a pause of tremendous moment, in which he stood aghast at his own deed. Then Ashlyn turned on him, his face purple and convulsed with rage. "'You dare to insult me! You dare to insult me in my own house! You dare to imply that it was the money, the, the damned money, that I wanted to win back!' Milbank looked up sharply. "'Good God, no!' he exclaimed with unwonted vehemence. "'Such a thought never entered my mind.' 
Then what's the meaning of all this? What is it all driving at? Ashton's hard, handsome face was contorted by passion, and his hands shook. Nothing. It, it's driving at nothing. It is simply that I do not wish to play. And why not? He suddenly rose, his great body towering above the others. Why not? By God, I'll have an answer. Th there is no answer. No answer? We'll see about that. Who's been lying to you about me? Who's been carrying scandals about me? Out with it! Out with it! Then unexpectedly, Milbank's trepidation forsook him. He suddenly straightened himself. No one, he answered. No one? Are you quite sure? No one. Then what do you mean by this? What do you mean by meddling in my affairs? He took a menacing step forward. Milbank stood firm. I have my reasons, he said quietly. Your reasons, have you? Ashton laughed harshly. <laughs> then I'll have my answer. What do you mean by it? For a second, the older man remained silent and unmoved. Then a light gleamed in his colourless eyes. All right, he said. You shall have it. Perhaps it is as well. I came here expecting to see the boy I had known grown into a genial, hospitable, honourable gentleman. Instead, I find him an undisciplined, tyrannical egotist. He said it quickly, in a rush of unusual vehemence. All his anticipations, all his suspicions, and their subsequent justification, coupled with a new sense of protection towards the children of his early friend, found voice in these words. "'You are an egotist, Dennis,' he repeated distinctly. "'A weak, worthless egotist, not fit to have children, not fit to have a friend.' Ashton stared at him for a moment in speechless surprise. Then indignation surmounted every other feeling. With a fierce gesture he took another step forward, his eyes blazing, his hand menacingly clenched. How, how, "'How dare you!' he stammered. "'How dare you! By God, if you were a bigger man, I'd—I'd—' I'd... He paused, choked by his fury. "'I know, I know, but I'm not afraid of you. I'm not to be bullied into subjection.' Milkbent's temper, difficult to rouse, was stirred at last. He gave his host glance for glance. "'You realise what you have said?' Ashton's dark face was distorted. His voice came unsteadily. "'Yes, I regret that I have to say it, but I do not regret saying it. It is wholesome for a man to hear the truth.' "'Oh, it's wholesome to hear the truth, is it?' "'Yes, and I won't see you go to pieces for want of a word. You are a man with obligations, and you are neglecting your obligations. There are other things in life besides cards and horses.' Ashlin suddenly threw back his head. "'By God, you're right!' he cried. "'And the other things are a damn sight worse. "'I put a good horse before a self-righteous preacher any day.' Milbank's usually pallid face flushed. "'You mean that for me?' he asked quietly. Ashlin shrugged his shoulders. "'If you like,' he said. "'If the cap fits.' For a moment Milbank said nothing. Then once again he straightened his small, thin figure. "'Very well, Dennis,' he said. "'I quite understand. "'With your permission I will say good-bye to you now, "'and to-morrow morning I will catch the earliest train from Muskia.' He looked at his host steadily. Then through the temper that still mastered him, a twinge of regret, a sense of parting and loss, obtruded themselves. With all his intolerable faults, 
Ashton still stood within the halo and glamour of the past. Dennis, he exclaimed suddenly. But the appeal was made too late. Uncontrollable fury, the one power which could efface his sense of hospitality, possessed Ashton. His pulses pounded, his senses were blurred. With a seething consciousness of insult and injury, he turned again upon his guest. "'You can go to hell for all I care!' he cried savagely. For a second, Milbank continued to look at him. Then, without a word, he turned, crossed the room, and passed into the hall. End of chapter 8 End of part 1